Hello, it's Friday 29th of September. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowen and I will be discussing the recovery outlook for the hotel sector across Southeast Asia with our special guest, Jesper Palmfist of STR, a part of CoStar Group. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we're excited to be talking hotel room rates, occupancies, and revenues in the region's key markets so far in 2023, and looking ahead to the vital final quarter of the year and beyond into 2024 with Jesper Palmqvist, Senior Director, Asia-Pacific at STR. Jesper is a well-known figure in the travel industry, and you may have seen him speaking at one of the travel and tourism conferences and seminars across the region. So, Jesper, thanks so much for coming on to the Southeast Asia Travel Show. How are you doing today? And where are you right now? Thank you for having me. I am in sunny Singapore and uh, enjoying another good Friday. And uh, I'm delighted to join uh, both of you on this uh, podcast today. So we've got so much to talk about. The hotel sector is vibrant and there's so much happening. I've been reading quite a lot of your recent posts on LinkedIn. But yes, but let's talk about you initially. You're originally from Sweden. What first brought you to Singapore? Yeah, yeah, it's a far away from home being from Sweden. Uh, listen, I always had a, I suppose, a keen eye for, for Asia as a whole. And then my family split up. I have a, a brother in Australia and the rest in Sweden. But I visited Singapore back over 20 years ago. And when I was based in London, uh, 15 years ago or so, I, I focused half of my time in that role on this region. And I, I suppose that spurred me and made me even more interested, both from like cultural and, and business perspective. And, uh, and then once I was given the opportunity uh, to relocate here for work, uh, I had the option Sydney, Hong Kong, and Singapore was my options. <laughs> and as much as I love the other two places, uh, in the end, we went with uh, Singapore. So that's uh, that's the short view of that. Nice. I think that would have been my choice too, but what a, what a choice. That's great. Um, so you've been Senior Director at APAC at ACE STR for 10 years, which incorporates the boom years of regional travel in the late 2010s, the destructive impact of COVID-19, and now that road to recovery. So how has the way STR analyzes hotel data changed during this, you know, very different types of periods? Do clients want different things now compared to pre-pandemic? Well, it's certainly been, like for everyone else, a big upheaval of, of how we run as a business. Fortunately for us, we were acquired by CoStar Group just before the pandemic four years ago which meant that we had a very large corporate uh, group backing us and bring us through first and foremost but in terms of the how we look at the data and what the clients ask for since it's uh, quite recent when i attended the sustainability conference up Phuket, what i like is the sustainability analysis and interest in that topic which is so important that bounced back much faster and didn't disappear, which is important. So people ask more about it and progressively ask and, and look into those uh, data points and, and how they develop hotels and tourism. Um, otherwise, um, data is way more centralized these days. That was an effect, some positive things that come out of it. Systems, if you rely on fewer people. Um, there's also a broader market interest across Asia Pacific. So we have more destinations, right? So that people are interested in more markets, more tier two, three, four, and look at, at specific maybe comparisons, resource beach versus urban. 
And I think that there is a maturity inherently in, in some of those second tier markets that leads to better alignment, better automation in data, and all that leads to obviously better data and deeper data. Um, and, and, and like and the consumption of this data has improved as well, like in how they analyze it. So more depth and speed in analysis across like top line, bottom line development, um, and even the real estate data that we have as well, of course. Yeah, that's fascinating. That leads quite ne neatly into the next question, Jesper. We're in this sort of hybrid period, really. Everybody, wherever you, wherever you turn, is talking about recovery, the stage of recovery, full recovery, growth recovery. How do you measure that at STR? I mean, what kind of benchmarks do you use? Do you look back at 2019? Is that too convenient? Is that irrelevant now? What, what kind of comparative metrics do you use for, for recovery? I love that reference to 2019. Uh, is everyone sick of that year yet? <laughs> I think every event we talk to, I say, I am kind of sick of that comparison when we pick it out. Hong Kong being an exception where it's 2018 was the high watermark. But we are at the last stretch of doing that. It's still valid because when you compare year over year, which is, you know, I suppose arguably more common, it, 2022 still had anomalies specifically around Q1 in many markets and China, totally different, right? So it's played a really important part of 2019. And listen, it's not, not just CoStar and STR doing that. I think many companies in industries and financial reporting. So 2019 has and continues for the next couple of months on an annualized basis to be important. What, what are we shooting for? Where it gets interesting is when you look beyond just the point in time, what matters is, of course, all the line items below. So in your top line then, so the rates and demand and the rev par, but also the bottom line, right? So it's your profits and productivity. So the cost, that comparison between those two uh, high watermarks that we had in the past and today, that's important, but also the day of week, length of stay, all those different uh, numbers that you can look at, seasonality, source market, but I think actually something like source market is interesting there when I mentioned that. The, that's a topic where there's an opportunity for reboot and change. Uh, there's less recovery, more about renewing because some might be overly dependent on something. So those measures do, to your point there, they, they kind of shift. Recovery means that you obviously make more money ultimately, right? That you are successful. Recovery means that my if you're an owner, that the profitability and the growth of my company is better or my quarterly earnings are better. That's ultimately what most people look at compared to the best I've ever had uh, in one way, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really interesting that, of course, you know, like you said, is everyone sick of 2019? Yeah, I certainly, um, I can't think how many times a, <laughs> a week I write 2019. But um, yeah, there's so much more when you, you dive below those those headline numbers as well like you're saying so zooming out then so yeah yeah but i could tell you one thing though like the, the 20 2019 it's uh, one thing that has done to have a fixed year as in comparison for so long is indexing which we do and like so many cases right index to 2019 index to 2019 like comparing if 2019 is 100 where am i now 98 or 102 before covid indexing was used very rarely. So, hey, it's another analysis and a metric that has gained attraction and it's become more valid. 
and I think it's a it's a good way of measure doing indexing. It's not the only one, and but I think that should be used. So there's a another benefit coming out of this that people are more accustomed to doing. Yeah, that's right, actually. Um, so let's zoom out now and and talk about Asia Pacific as a whole. And of course, you know, we all know Asia Pacific as a region. It's completely different. Countries opened all at different rates. They're all in these different periods of recovery. So overall, you know, where are the hotel booking bright spots in 2023 in APAC? And where are those who are the laggards in terms of recovery? Uh, throughout 23, we've certainly seen a more broader recovery when, of course, China started coming back as well in the, from the start of the year. We, if you, it's actually easier to start with those that are laggards, that are a bit behind, because they're not that many. In Southeast Asia, particularly, you have Cambodia and Myanmar. And Myanmar, obviously, with political challenges and not being a mature tourism market, say, as the number one of Thailand, it was always going to be tricky um, for them to, to reboot out of this. Cambodia is, I suppose, really unfortunate and sad in a way because they did really well during COVID in, in terms of the vaccination and all the protocol. But again, it was just emerging as a really strong tourism destination and, and developing and building out. So we're still lacking demand into Cambodia. A lot of that is, of course, on flights. So those two kind of stand out. Sri Lanka and Vietnam was in that bucket a while back, but in the last couple of months, they've started coming back. Sri Lanka still have, obviously, challenges uh, from a financial and so economic and development and political, but it is an amazing destination, and I have full faith that they will come back. It just takes a bit longer in Vietnam, similarly, but at least we started to see some travel happen, happening there. Outside that, it's it's really quite strong. Uh, what's missing maybe is some of that, you know, that midweek business travel. Flights, I keep coming back to that. I've, that's probably the bugbear that I've been talking too much about. Flights is still such an issue, that long haul capacity still short from 2019. And that impacts a number of these emerging markets that didn't have super established flight routes uh, before this. I think that's the, the biggest challenge on them. But overall, it's you can easily pick apart the ones that are a little bit behind, but mainly it's it's driving a lot of forward. Yeah, you mentioned China there. Obviously, that's the, the big story, and it's been a bit, perhaps a little bit slower than people were expecting in terms of outbound, but its domestic sector this year has been absolutely booming. And we've seen that, haven't we, Jesper, across different markets, particularly the larger markets in our region, that domestic travel is still holding up pretty strong after the pandemic. Is, is that showing through in, in the hotel booking rates? Yeah, it is. I think domestic is domestic was such a boost and, and uh, across most of these places, even in little Singapore, right? <laughs> Singapore would never have a lot of staycations and domestic travel being such a small place, but we certainly saw that. But it's easiest to look at Australia, Indonesia and India, and of course, China, being so big, that pivot to domestic. Now, one risk, of course, in terms of rates is when you do domestic, which we see in Malaysia and Indonesia, domestic travelers will pay less, right? It's a different kind of traveler. They stay in different places, different length of stay, but that's better than nothing. And of course, the high-end luxury may see that a little bit different, but it's on below that, on upscale and below, I suppose, that has a, a rate effect. But I think Japan, Maybe Japan is an interesting example. There was this movement. Think about, you know, there was a public survey about, what, 18 months ago before they opened? I think it was 18 months ago. 
And in that survey, two thirds said, please don't open up our country again. You know, like it's 1603 and it's the Shogunate times, <laughs> which, uh, you know, yeah, don't open up our country. Tourism can obviously from a mindset be a double-edged sword then, but it's certainly back now because I suppose people who live in that and they're domestic, they would see, hang on, this is kind of nice. We get our country to ourselves, but that not that's not how economy works. <laughs> so I think domestic was a true savior for many markets. Not everywhere, where you don't have it. Well, if you don't have that engine, they struggled more. There was a clear divide through there. Now we're seeing in China as the biggest example where, remember China has long haul domestic travel, very rare, I suppose, around the world, going to so Xinjiang province or North and East, Northeast and then that. So we've got a lot of domestic travel. You have to remember that China started that a long time ago to change how they travel domestically. So it's, it's interesting to see that domestic piece has certainly meant a lot. Uh, in some places rates, but in China, people are absolutely happy or have been happy since it reopened to pay high rates. So we've seen that rate recovery come eventually. It really started in, in uh, the summer. Yeah, that's true. I was in Macau last week and you know that place is booming at the moment. The rates are really high. The occupancies are really, really high. They're a very young demographic as well. That's one of the interesting things I thought about was that you know a lot of younger people paying high mm. rates for, for hotel and, and resorts. Great point. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Macau. We've heard that as well and seen it's people are trying to go because if you think about it, that's obviously an easier place to travel to Hong Kong and Macau uh, from mainland China. So and when they have a lot of good product there and they've rolled out the red carpet for that that travel. And I think the interesting things that hotels need to think about is you think about the, the, the group travel and, and that, and the, but it's the, the FIT, so the independent travelers, and like you said, that younger traveler, they're definitely exploring, and that's that's a different traveler that maybe the hotels are ready for, huh? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, the interesting thing there, they have a lot of resorts, they have a lot of upscale accommodation. They're now saying that they, they probably need a bit more three-star, three-star plus and four-star accommodation um, for that sort of next level of travel that can't probably afford the higher rates, but still wants to go to Macau, because as you said, the product there is so well tailored to the to the Chinese market, perhaps better so than ever right now. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that development impact, if it is strong enough, it can absolutely shift what developers look for. It's, of course, important to bear in mind that that takes a long time, because obviously the, the whole planning and, and development and people's egos and, and brands, etc., play a part in that. But um, if that persists and you start seeing that trend, for sure, change to, you know, um, select and mid-scale and, and that extended stay product, and like we've seen in other countries. So yes, but you were just talking about domestic markets and Singapore. Um, so let's go back to Singapore, and you know, it's making a real drive this year to differentiate itself from its Southeast Asian peers by hosting events. You know, we just had the F1. Um, obviously, they're hosting Taylor Swift next year. Coldplay. What impact is that having on its ADR and hotel occupancies? Yeah, Singapore, it's been, like you said, in the headlines for sure. The, the reboot of the F1 last year was such a tremendous success, and that was in 22. This year was also huge success. I had a great weekend. I think uh, the other 300,000 people did as well. And listen, I think it's very competitive when you look that that event space and you compare to, say, Bangkok, you know, with a great new centers and meeting centers that are being built around the region for sure i think 
you have to give credit to STB and all the forces that drive this because the backdrop is that Singapore is it's heavily regulated, right? Timing and zoning, it's costly to put on shows. So to see that influx of all these events from large to small is impressive. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in music. There's so many indie bands coming here now more than ever before. We didn't used to have that. That builds something locally and regionally on a Southeast Asian basis. But I agree, the main point, the headline is more about the first half of next year, those big events, even the, the Rotary Convention. But Taylor Swift, was it's it's so different from anything we've seen as she applies the airline hub and spoke conversion where everyone needs to come to her like if you like this you better come to me i'll be here all week like six nights with a, a break in between and we've never seen anything like it in terms of early demand but of course you ask about rates this is about demand first some people go in and get groups and things like that which may be at a lower rate but once compression hits historically, when you reach 90%, which you'll get closer to that, like you do in F1, then rates will be increased. And it was only, I would say, five, six years ago that Singapore, the hotels here got really good in managing that compression. Before that, you had other Southeast Asian markets where they pushed rates higher when they had, had high occupancy. But they are doing that more and more now. So I, I would expect those that have those boosts in, in ADR as well uh, during the main events. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, Yes, Because you look, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a nerd. I do comb through all the data. And you look at the, the number of visitors to Singapore this year. It's, it, you know, it's considerably down on 2019. We use that number again. Um, but the, the hotel rates are, are strong. So the, the, there's, it's not just about demand. It can't be because there's not as many people coming into the city. No, it's, it's definitely about the, the, the rates and how that, that drives it, right? We, we know that the rates and cost control have been the biggest things that, that drive this. So in light of that, you have investors and developers that come back. Now, of course, you've got cost of, of debt that is still high for many and there's interest rates still an issue. There's a gap between buyers and sellers, but we see more deals in 23, certainly in Japan. I expect more of that in 24 if the economic outlook uh, improves after this potential current correction, if you will. But the rates are not likely to drop. The rates are not likely to drop from this. I think we we continue to see a, a, a an ability for people to pay these rates and as long as the you know labor cost and other cost items are not uh, growing at a faster pace than the revenue yeah, that continues to continues to grow the profitability of the hotels oh rates not dropping is, is not good news for future trips for me to singapore but yeah i mean great for the hoteliers in singapore from that point of view um but you know if we're looking at is Singapore taking this approach with these different events um, and I suppose using those as an anchor to attract tourists, to, to boost hotel occupancy and so on. Is this a strategy that can be sustained as we go forward? You know, can they repeat this? I mean, Taylor Swift can't come to Singapore every year, or can she? <laughs> no, and even if she could, I don't think she would. Um, she's, she's The world is her oyster at the moment, right? She's become this, this mega artist. Uh, so for sure, I think other artists and other events will continue to grow. We will have, I think, these boosts that keep coming and create compression nights, which is not very different like with some markets had in the past. If you look at Hong Kong in, in 
Q4 with all the events always had during a couple of months there. We're not seeing any indication that right now that things will fall and in terms of the demand and the interest in that kind of event. We've seen that the rate growth has slowed down and the next couple of years, you know, next couple of years, we'd expect a two to three percent growth um, on that. And if you have that steady growth of rates, like I said, and, and all the cost is controlled and maintained, uh, the outlook is pretty good, right? And this is the first time where we can forecast a little bit more with stability, with that one disclaimer in the background of recessional fears or anything. And remember, we have two different kinds of recession, the, the Western one and the, the Chinese ones, the fears of that. But as long as that doesn't have too much impact on people's spend, there's certainly a, a an ability that we see and we try not to be overly positive about it we i, I do like risk and assessing that um, so i think there it's 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 a reasonably positive outlook still yeah I totally agree with that so we have to talk about china we can't uh, avoid it at the moment it's mid-autumn festival today the golden week is coming up they they can join um don't usually do that but it's an eight-day holiday in china that means, and this has been a lot of the talk, Jesper, in recent weeks, has been group tour travel because so many more countries now are actually able to attract group tours from China. They've had this sort of slowly developing approved destination status uh, program running through the last eight months. As we start to see more group tours coming into the region, could that have any impact on, well, occupancies for sure, but what about rates for the rest of 2023 and into 2024? I think the short answer there is uh, not much of an impact on 23 and to some degree in 24. It's so gradual. I think it's important that people realize that this remains a big unknown factor. I keep again coming back to flights. China outbound flights are 50% of international, yeah, compared to 2019. So 50% of international flights are what they had in 2019. And it's only what is it? Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong are the only ones above 75-80% of 2019 capacity in flights. US is still below 10%. And even if that's coming back and growing, it takes so long for that industry and all those, the winter schedule now and the next year's summer schedule. We'll see some more. So that creates an unknown segment. And so much has happened in three and a half years. If you look at China, it already started that transition to a more modern, if you will, domestic tourism. Then there's the consumer spending slowing down or the fears of that and all the economic situation, construction companies, and it's pressure on the system. So let's not exaggerate and say that it will fail, but there is pressure on it, no doubt. And there's a lot of bigger factors. And I think, of course, more Chinese are traveling out already, but it comes very gradually in a logarithmic kind of growth. it's the end of that logarithmic scale that we're not sure of yet and the timing. If it's summer next year, if it's around the three major holidays as they come out, it's likely to hit historically. If you look Japan, Korea, Hong Kong and Singapore, maybe first, now that all countries are open for that group travel when the restrictions are gone, we expect to see some for sure. But it, that system needs to be rebooted on both sides in a way. And I think that takes much longer than we expected in the past. So I don't see a huge impact on that, uh, on the rate perspective on 24. As you have to remember, the counterpoint is the final piece of the weekday travels as flights become more affordable to counter that, that can sustain some of the rates as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and it, you know, I think Thailand hoping that they're going to get 5 million Chinese tourists by the end of the year are just in um, 
Cuckooland, I think. <laughs> so you're talking about weekday travel. I know, you know, weekends, weekday travel, business travel plays a, a big part in that. Um, are we seeing a stronger return of business travel in 2023? Yeah, it's certainly improved. Uh, it's picked up pretty well in this year, for sure. In the main uh, business markets, business travel came back as we always hoped and expected. Maybe we overused that PowerPoint slide with Bill Gates early on saying it, it won't come back more than 50%. And we said, we think it will. It It's come back strongly. It's not everywhere yet because flights again do matter. I mean, the usual urban hubs are strong and important, but it's also gone into the tier two or the regional business travel as well. But like for instance, when Australia still miss international flights, the Melbourne-Sydney route that is so important is strong and, and has a lot of weekday travel. I think Sydney CBD as an indicator is, is a strong factor where it's missing a little bit, but it's come a long way. So weekdays is driving that. And if you look at Southeast Asia, Jakarta, KL and, and Bangkok and Singapore are certainly seeing a, a very strong growth this year in the, in the weekday travel, just missing a, a few points here and there, right, across some of the hotel classes, but not, not by much. So let's, uh, as, as we draw towards a close, Jesper, let's, um, let's talk about seasonality. We're going to look over our shoulder again back to, to before the pandemic. You mentioned there about the Chinese market, the three big holidays. You also referenced the, the two half-year air schedules that run from China with the big airlines. But generally, were we seeing changes in seasonality in hotel occupancies before the pandemic? And have we seen any changes on that since the pandemic? Yeah, I think uh, there were some changes before the pandemic as both from a destination perspective that they opened up, uh, there was more competition, like all the new Vietnamese destinations, right? And across Indonesia as well. So as that started, you also have on the other side, the one of the major topics in the last few years has been India outbound, right? So India as a source market, uh, they have a strong young demographic of, of people making more money that are able and interested in traveling outside India as well. So we started to see it and then that all disappeared. As it returns, a lot of seasonality has returned for good and bad. I mean, sure, in Southeast Asia, monsoons play a, a big part in, in that, a natural part, if you will, even if that's kind of disrupted by an environmental impact, I suppose. But it's back in many tourism. My peak is in Thailand coming up. Bali was the peak a couple of months ago. That pushed rates and demand very high and still strong in Bali. Maybe one thing where seasonality is not really back would be in those events where we used to have these pockets around the year where predestined for larger events. I think that's more placed a little bit roundly around the year. So we're looking for maybe some it's not stability because maybe that's a good thing right we seasonality there's a chance like i said earlier to reboot this and go into uh, can we change things i've always questioned why maldives in june is a bad month if it rains slightly more it's a great destination in june and that's supposed to be low season yeah exactly and probably you know if you have less seasonality for hotels and and restaurants and so on it's going to make managing the staffing and everything else a, a lot more straightforward as well, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, seasonality, I, I always look at that and go, like, it, it's hard. I, you know, the extremes, of course, someone who's open, say it is in uh, Nyapali and on, on the Myanmar western coast there, right? that's only open a few months or six months every year. 
that's hard to manage and operate uh, accommodation during those circumstances, but that happens around the world. But if that middle norm can even out a bit and see a more even flow, of course, that's better for any operator or owner. Yeah, absolutely. So in general, um, the overall hospitality environment, it seems to be pretty buoyant, despite the fact that, you know, as Gary was saying, a lot of destinations are receiving less visitors than in 2019 right now. So why is that? And, you know, is it masking any potential downsides we should be looking out for? Well, there is, there's plenty of risk underneath. I tried to look at that risk and see how, how valid it is at the moment. Recession is the big one that has been lurking around. And does that mean consumer spending and the, the inflation, of course, has had an impact on, on consumer spending already in many parts of the world that we've seen that general slowdown in economy. But it's easy to look at Wall Street and see that, oh, it's a main indicator. It's not always the case, right? People still travel, particularly in luxury, where we high-end travel continues throughout. So if the acquisitions slow down and if brokers lack cash flow like we see and the airlift is too slow, we have new supply in some markets. We are in that kind of peak as well. So, I mean, the main risks, I would probably say that they matter, but because of this big, you know, when we people started talking about revenge travel and coming back, it just tapered out. And we saw just this long tail of, okay, so... It's no longer revenge travel, it's just travel. And people are sick of talking about the new norm and the normality. This is travel. We're back and people are traveling in terms of seasonality. We see some new source markets. So people are positive about going and they've forgotten very easily and quickly what happened a few years ago now. So I, I think the, the risk factors that we have are a lot of it economical and the pressure on hotels maybe is underestimated because the cost control was in part a forced product of COVID, right? So how you needed to increase productivity and work with fewer staff and everything, but it has to a large degree worked. Now, what does that mean to the staff and the hotels and the operators? What does that mean to them? So I think one interesting conversation I come back to is, well, if you have that good profitability with that kind of staff, will the owners then ask for higher profitability moving forward. So that conversation might become a little bit more direct and tough into 24. And I, I think that that potentially is a risk as well. Yeah, that's I totally agree with that. So I agree with you. Yes, but we are tired of looking back at 2019. As you said, we're, <laughs> we're coming towards the end of that point where we use it as a, as a convenient reference point. And we're now looking more into the future. Across our region, particularly in Southeast Asia, we are starting to see a lot of big infrastructure build out happening once again, a lot of new airports, a lot of new railway lines, that kind of thing. Um, and hotel pipelines will be part of that. What, what, what do you see some of the trends in terms of hotel pipelines in the next few years? Yeah, it's a, a great topic. Peak, we looked at if you ignore COVID, lovely sentence, but uh, peak in Asia Pacific as a whole is kind of now delivery of new rooms. And that's obviously bigger peak than we expected. Now, China is more into 24 because they reopen a bit later in construction. But broadly speaking, it's about this 23 into 24. And it was both, both because this was planned earlier and then you have all these delayed projects. One trend that we saw already that was maybe accelerated was you see fewer keys, fewer rooms, so smaller hotels in terms of the, the planning. So fewer mega hotels and more uh, of those, and also moving into 
these lifestyle brands, but maybe more of uh, select service and the, the upper mid scale, certainly a, a huge thing in the last few years in China, we also see in Southeast Asia, a, an enhanced and upgraded economy and higher economy type of product that I think was missing here. Uh, we talked about that earlier as well. Just there's, there was always a gap there that isn't maybe as sexy for an investor, but we, I think that's a trend that we're starting to see more. It's just also way more branded. We keep showing a, a slide that I like it 10 years back. We have gained 10 percentage points in Asia. It used to be 48% branded of the inventory is now 58%. So we've left, Asia has left, say, the, uh, the Europe and Pacific markets behind and together with Middle East, which is also more branded and is now closer to North America. So that, that's not to say that we have plenty of individual properties and entrepreneurs. Southeast Asia is an amazing entrepreneurial uh, part of the world. You look at Indonesia and Thailand, there are new hotels, concepts and brands and new hotels small that are coming up. And I think that's incredibly important to our industry and ecosystem. I'm sure some of them will be gobbled up by the big boys and girls, but it's great to see that funnel still coming in with new exciting uh, prospects uh, and, and new kinds of hotels. Absolutely. And so with that, I think let's bring the show to a close for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, thanks very much to Jesper. That was fascinating insights. Uh, it tells you really where we are in 2023 and what we can look uh, forward to in 2024. As always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. But Gary and I will be back next week to review the top travel and tourism talking points in Southeast Asia from the month of September. Speak to you then.